Before we look to God's word, let's just pause for a moment of prayer. Our Lord, as we look to your word, open our hearts, our minds, and speak to us. In Christ's name, amen. If you had the opportunity to start a new church, and you could select for that church any people you wanted, who would you choose? Now, I don't mean just names of people, but what kinds of people would you choose to be part of that church? It'd be interesting to go around the congregation this morning and hear your responses. I imagine uh, some of you would want to cho uh, choose influential people, uh, people who were really good contacts throughout the city of Jacksonville. No doubt, uh, some of you would say, well, I want someone with a good reputation, people who are highly respected. Certainly, you probably would want a few people who are financially able and make sure that uh, all the payments get met and that you're able to sustain this church that you're about to start. You would probably want some good leaders, a few really good organizers in order to make things happen. You probably would select some people who are very outgoing so that they could greet newcomers and welcome them, make them feel part of this church that you're about to start. And above all, I'm sure that you would choose people who were spiritually mature. Now, the interesting thing is that when Jesus went to start the church, when Jesus began to gather around him people who would be the pillars of the church, for all times, all places throughout history, he chose just about the opposite of what you and I would choose. And nowhere is that more evident in our passage for this morning, the call of Matthew to be an apostle, Mark, the second chapter. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, with me to Mark chapter 2. In Mark's gospel, Jesus had just healed a paralytic man, a man let down from the roof. He claimed that his sins were forgiven and the teachers of the law were aghast. Blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus leaves that house, house and that situation and he, he begins to walk along a lake and a whole group of people began to gather around him. Evidently, the word had gotten out about Jesus' healing and people were fascinated with Jesus and so they began to throng to hear him. And as Jesus walked along the lake, he taught them. Now, that was a very common way of teaching for the rabbis in the first century. As a matter of fact, I've often thought that would be a fun way to teach. Just walk on the beach of Jacksonville and have the class alongside me teaching. The only problem is I would miss my PowerPoint, which I'm sometimes really glued to. But Jesus is walking along. The crowds of people are with him. He is teaching. And as they're walking, they come upon a man named Levi who is sitting at a tax collector booth. Verse 14. As he walked alongside, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and he followed him. Now, we really don't know a lot about this man. In the Gospel of Matthew, he is called Matthew. Likely his, na his name got changed after his conversion. He's the son of Alphaeus, but we don't have a clue who Alphaeus is. 
We do know that he goes on to be the writer of the first gospel, the, the gospel according to St. Matthew. We don't know whether this was the first time he had met Jesus or whether there had been some previous meetings and this was the culmination. But what we do know, the one thing that stands out above everything else is Jesus, or rather Matthew, is in the wrong profession. He's a tax collector. How unlikely a candidate to be an apostle. And if you had lived in the first century and you were gathering people to be the uh, core, to build a new church, I think the last people you probably would have chosen would have been a tax collector. Now, in first century Rome, you had a lot of different kinds of taxes, just as we do today. You had poll taxes, which were taxes on individuals. Think income tax. And then you also had land taxes, which were collected annually. And that was basically akin to our property taxes today. But you also had taxes along transport routes. And this was the type of tax collecting that Matthew was evidently involved in as he's sitting at a tax collecting booth. This kind of a, a, a tax collecting meant that as people came along in caravans and as individuals and they were carrying various goods to sell or goods they had purchased, they would be taxed for those goods. Matthew likely would have worked under a tax farmer who would then take the money directly to Rome. And to be a tax collector, to get the job, you had to bid against other people and you had to somehow demonstrate that you could collect more money than anybody else that would come to you, to the tax farmer, and eventually to the Roman Empire. And so they would be at these key points of entry and as they came along, they would be taxed by this guy at the tax booth. Now, you can imagine it was just filled with fraud from the get-go. You see, they didn't have a sun pass on their windshield that got you through. You came up to the tax booth, and you were simply at the mercy of the tax collector. And obviously, he would impose whatever he wanted on the goods that you were carrying. Tax collectors were despised by the Jewish people. For one thing, they collected money for a foreign power occupying their land. Thus, they were in cahoots with Rome. They were notoriously unscrupulous, growing wealthy at the expense of others, even their own people. Their work involved direct contact with Gentiles, and so they were deemed by the Jewish people to be ritually unclean. They never could have even gotten into the temple to worship. Hatred for the tax collectors was intense in the ancient world. That's found even among the writings of some of the ancient rabbis. The hatred would extend even to the families of these tax collectors. They were considered no better than robbers. In fact, in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 21, the people linked them with harlots and sinners. One writer describes the situation this way. Levi knew what it meant to be an outcast from his people. He knew the bitterness of separation from his people and the sordid life of the underworld in which he operated. Thus, who would ever have expected that as Jesus was gathering 12 people, 
to be the pillars of his church, this community of his followers that he would build upon, a group of people that would be the foundation for all times and all places, that he would come and select a Matthew. But he came up to him on that day and he gave the universal invitation that he gave, gives to all of us, come and follow me. And Matthew got up and followed him, turned his life uh, against the lucrative business, which was bringing him a lot of money, and became a follower of Jesus Christ and became one of the 12 apostles. Now, it was bad enough that Jesus had selected a tax collector as far as the religious leaders were concerned. But what is to follow in the story actually infuriated them all the more. Matthew was likely so overjoyed with his newfound faith, his new master, his new Lord, that he decided to throw a dinner party for some of his friends, some of his old business cronies, some of the people he knew. He wanted them to meet Jesus, the man who had changed his life. The problem was the people that Matthew hung out with weren't the holy type. This was ensured by his vocation. No pious Jew would ever lay claim to a tax collector as a friend. And so we read in verse 15, while Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. It's really interesting, this word sinners refers to a very distinct category of people in Jewish minds. It's almost a technical term for those who could not follow the law of God out of ignorance or who would not follow the law of God out of their own will. Sinners were people who hung out on the wrong side of the moral tracks. Uh, they were the spiritual outcasts. They were ostracized by the religious community. Sinners were not the kind of people who would feel comfortable with the teachers of the law and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law would never feel comfortable with them. But on this night, Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners. And to share a meal in that culture and in that time symbolized friendship. When you sat down with someone in that culture and you had a meal with them, it was a way of saying to them, I accept you, I love you, I care for you, I want to be your friend. And this isn't the last time that Jesus would engage in this kind of activity. In Luke chapter 15, we're told that the Pharisees and teachers of the law complained, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Matthew eleven nineteen, 19, Jesus is known as a friend of tax collectors and sinners. On this night, it's as if Jesus had gone down to the heart of the red light district in local city and was having dinner with the pimps and prostitutes. Or it's as if Jesus was dining with the leaders of the local mafia. Or it was as if Jesus had hopped on his Harley and had gone to the roughest motorcycle gang in the city that you could think of. 
Or it was as if Jesus was meeting with the power brokers and government and business who were notorious for their unethical behavior. How in the world was Jesus ever going to build a church out of these people? From the human perspective, clearly, he was starting at the wrong place. So no wonder we read in verse 16, when the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? I don't think this was at all a philosophical question or just a question of inquiry. I think it was a question of utter disgust. Probably they were saying, why in the world does this man eat with these kind of people? Doesn't he know decency? Doesn't he know protocol? To our way of thinking, Jesus had botched it royally. He seems to have thrown common sense down the drain. Why does he eat with tax collectors and harlots and crooks and sinners? Jesus evidently heard their complaint. Now, we don't know whether he audibly heard it or where the disciples nestled up to him and said, Jesus, we got a little problem. The religious paparazzi are across the street with their cameras and they know we're in here and they know who we're eating with. Or perhaps he simply knew it as the all-knowing son of God that he was. But Jesus gave a profound response to their question. Verse 17. On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have come to call, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. The rationale for Jesus' actions, first of all, calling Matthew a tax collector. Secondly, eating with this group of spiritual hoodlums, if you will. The rationale was very simple. Jesus was the good doctor who had come to make a house call. In old times, doctors and house calls didn't go to people who were well. This was before the age of preventative medicine. Doctors, when they made house calls, went to people who were sick and ailing and and dying. And in a very real sense, Jesus is saying, I am the doctor for the human soul. I am the doctor for the human person who feels anguish and alienation and lostness and hopelessness in their life. He has come not for the righteous, but for sinners, for tax collectors, for harlots, for scoundrels, for people exactly like this that he was dining with on this evening. For these people were sinners, and most of them knew they were. Jesus, of course, knows and knew that none are righteous on their own merit within themselves, but the teachers of the law didn't get that. The teachers of the law thought that because of all of their religiosity, because of all of their synagogue going, because of all of their attempts to keep the law, because of all the rituals they had gone through, they were healthy and they were good and they were right before God. And so they would expect that a rabbi like Jesus would applaud them and say, well done. They assumed that their own righteousness would get them salvation. They did not understand it as a gift of God's grace. 
But the Pharisees, you see, were sinners, immensely so. But the one person for whom Jesus can do nothing is the person who thinks themselves so good they have no need of anything beyond themselves in life. And the one person for whom Christ can do everything is the sinner who acknowledges it and opens themselves to God's grace and mercy and love. The tax collectors were sinners, and many of them knew it. And hence, they on that night were the candidates for the kingdom of God. The religious officials did not admit their sin, and hence, they were unlikely candidates for the kingdom of God. But it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And so he ate with them. He called one of them to be his apostle. And that apostle, Matthew, went on to be the human writer of the first gospel, the gospel according to St. Matthew. When I think about this story, I think, boy, how far removed the church of the 21st century is from the pattern of Jesus more than 2,000 years ago. I'm sure that most of us sitting here today acknowledge Christ as Savior and Lord. We recognize him as the one who is God's fullest revelation to humanity. We recognize him as fully God and fully man, as the creeds put it. We enjoy his presence through the Spirit of God in our own lives, and we gather as we do in a wonderful way on Sunday morning to experience him anew in our lives. And yet how far removed we often seem from the Jesus who called tax collectors, sinners, harlots, crooks to build his church. I suspect, too, that most of us sitting here this morning are really committed to and, and really desirous of sharing that good news and seeing people come to faith in Christ and experience his healing grace in their lives. And yet, if we're honest, too often today and too often throughout the history of the church, we have developed a fortress mentality to keep the saints in and to keep the sinners out. If you're like me, I find it a lot more comfortable to be with people who think like me and act somewhat like me and have a, have a commitment to this gospel. It's a lot more comfortable to be around folks like that. And after all, we all know that God wants us to live holy, distinct lives in the midst of this broken world. And so with those kinds of commitments and understanding, it's easy to understand how we develop that fortress mentality. And yet the reality is I simply cannot get away from this story in Mark's Gospel, chapter 2, of Jesus calling a tax collector and going to a dinner party, hanging out with them, demonstrating to them the mercy and love of God and inviting them to experience it. Hugh Redwood tells a story of a woman in the Dock District of London many years ago who had had a child out of wedlock. She was living with a man she was not married to, and 
She heard about a church that was existing just down the street a bit and feeling a sense of anguish in her own life, a sense of lostness. She went to a, a woman's gathering at this church and she began to go come back several different times. She liked what she heard. First time she had ever heard the word of God. First time she had ever heard the gospel. And after several weeks of attending this gathering, the vicar, the pastor of the church came up to her and said, um, I'm really sorry, but I'm going to have to ask you not to come back. The woman looked her question. And the pastor said, the other women in the church said they won't come back if you keep coming. The woman looked at that pastor and she said, look, I know I'm a sinner. But is there anywhere a sinner can go? That question haunts us today, doesn't it? People living a lifestyle and ways of life that are totally void of Christ, outside the designs of God, aren't really happy deep down within in their own way of life. They're longing for healing and hope and renewal and forgiveness. They're longing for the very thing that Christ can bring and that can be understood and known in the context of the Christian church. And so the question haunts us, is there anywhere a sinner can go? C.T. Studd was a missionary to China, and he used to quote several lines that emphasized his own sense of call in that country. He said, some want to live within the sound of church and chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. Pretty powerful, isn't it? The story is told about an imaginary conversation between Jesus and the angel Gabriel after Jesus had ascended back into heaven. And the conversation went like this. Well, how did it go? Gabriel asked Jesus. Did you complete your mission and save the world? Well, yes and no, Jesus replied. I modeled a godly life for about 30 years. I preached to a few thousand Jews in one corner of the Roman Empire. I died for the sins of the world and promised that those who believe in me will live forever. And then I burst from the tomb on the third day to show my circle of 120 frightened followers that my life and story are God's way to save the whole world. And then I gave them the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit to those 120, and I left them to finish the task. You mean Gabriel asks in amazement? You mean your whole plan to save the world depends on that ragtag bunch of fishermen, ex-prostitutes, and tax collectors? That's right. Jesus replied. But what if they fail? Gabriel persists with growing alarm. What's your backup plan? And Jesus replied quietly, there is no backup plan. We are it. He's called us to demonstrate the grace and mercy and love of God and to proclaim it, even in parties with tax collectors, crooks, prostitutes, and sinners. Let us pray.
Gracious God, this story does haunt us in many ways. I confess I personally feel uncomfortable with it. I like being with saints. I like being in meals with people who love you and who want to follow you and who are following you. But Lord, you came into this world not to bring healing to the healthy, but healing to the sick. And we want to be obedient to your calling in our lives. We want to follow the claims of the gospel in the midst of this complex, broken, sad world. Give us the strength, the courage, and the might to follow you even into the darkest corners of our world. In Christ's name we pray, amen.